podcast by the vet gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Good afternoon, morning, evening. It's Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 185, April 16, April the 16th, 2021. And what a week it's been, Mark. I can't remember what's happened over the last week. It's been, I tell you what, it's been cold down here. We had some really, really cold days and lots of rain. And it didn't help with the garden, Mark. Well, it helped with the garden that we got the rain and the, and the grass took off. But part of the problem was I ordered a, a couple of metres of soil. I don't I've, think we've spoken about. No, no. So I was we, keen. We I was keen to get the update because from the last time yes. we spoke, you had the raised garden beds and and you had to fill yes. them up with some soil. So what happened? Yes. So I filled filled up half of them and and the other two that didn't they came sort of unpackaged. <laughs> um, the delivery was was damaged. Um, so they sent another lot and I've assembled one of those. So it's sitting out on the porch near me here. Um, but it's not in the garden. So we've got half the soil set on the driveway and I've covered it with um, a tarp, with a, um, tarp tarpaulin and um, a painting, um, another painting sort of um, um, canvas as well to try and stop it being washed away because we had some heavy rains. And I, and I think you had some heavy rains up your way as well, did you? That, well, we, we didn't this time, no. It's just a bloody the leftover cold snap that's washed up from you guys and uh and we've had uh we've lit the fire for the first time in the year in this year and um uh, we we turned on the ducted heating <laughs> yes I, I i went outside and i flicked the switch to the electricity to the ducted gas heating and um, we had it on a couple of times so it's very chilly so um try not to use it much because i don't know about up your way but um, gas is expensive, Mark. Um, yeah, gas is expensive. Well, so we rug up and we all yeah. um, wander around the house with our um, dressing gowns on, on during the middle of the day. <laughs> yes, and the and the hoodies on and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yes. So there you go. That's the weather report um, for this week, Mark. Um, and I think you had a little bit of other news about something, a purchase of yours. Well, I, I was um, going to – I was telling you about um, my excitement about um, a trip we've got planned for later in the year um, that uh, one of my friends has organised a photographic uh, journey over um, – over you know a, a few days at Lake Eyre doing uh, repeated aerial photography, um, and I've been looking at some of the photographers who take photographs of that sort of um, uh, stuff, hanging out of planes and trying to get those uh, different perspectives, the drone-like shots. And geez, I've been inspired, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, so that will be in a little, a little Cessna or something. Will yeah. it? How many people in the plane? Well. There'll be um, four four people in the plane and one or two dangling outside. <laughs> yes, that's exciting. And um, for our overseas listeners, do you want to sort of tell them where that particular geographical feature is in Australia? It is bloody well in the centre. It's um in South Australia in the desert. Um, it's where uh, um, it's a giant salt lake, Lake Eyre, and uh, um, and at the moment because of the recent rain that we've had, uh, there's 
a lot of inflow and uh, um, and water in the lake, and as a consequence, there's a lot of colour and uh, texture to be observed from above. So it's a very exciting time. And bird life. Well, it is. It's one of the magic things about Lake Eyre that um, all those birds that um, shoot up and down the east uh, Australasian um, flyway from Siberia, Mongolia down to Australia and New Zealand and beyond, um, a bunch of them realise, I don't know how they know this, Brendan, but um, they realise there's water there and they go there to to um, some of them to breed. The pelicans don't do the whole East uh, Asian airway thing. They um, they literally just uh, travel from over here where I live over to Lake Air to breed. But, um, but, yeah, how they know and they know to go where the food and resources are, magical stuff. There'll be lots of birds to photograph. Yes, well... It's a bit of a mystery, but um, no more so than when you ch- manage to find a pub when you're out and about um, in the middle of a town you don't know about, Mark. It's all that uh, subtle signs, smells, magnetic field yes. of the earth. We, we plug it all in. Yes, yes. Now, before we, or before you talk about your first and only news story, Mark, you wanted to give a shout out to a group that you gave a little a little um, Zoom meeting to, Mark, on avian nutrition. Uh, some, we had a bit of a talk to some students from Iowa State University. Uh, we had a discussion about bird nutrition and um, crockies. It was uh, once we'd gotten over the uh, vagaries of um, comparing central standard time to east australians daylight savings time and of course it was just a few days after we changed from one one form of australian time to another but once we got that all sorted out um we well i think we well at least from my point it's always difficult to tell um the students you know are such sponges and um and uh and listen to everything they're told and it's the end of their towards the end of their academic year so they're probably all a bit exhausted but it was a a a great hour just talking about um the some of the clinical clinical aspects of nutrition in our avian species Yes, I think you undersell yourself there a little bit. Um, the organizer Riley did send a copy of it of the video, didn't um, didn't Riley to both of us. And um, as we were talking off air, I, I happened to put it on the big TV um, in the in the living room, and um, there was your noggin, your face there, um, talk talking away. And um, yeah, I think there's some. They, were, they seemed quite engaged. I, I, I must admit, I did fast forward it towards the Q and A at the end. <laughs> But um, there were some quite interesting questions and mainly about sort of the things that were often asked about how to get into a particular field and um, how to, you know, those sort of interpersonal skills and, and, and skills of dealing with um, clients, et cetera, um, and, and how, to, how to be a wildlife vet or an exotic vet or an, or an avian vet. Um, so, yeah, that no, was a very good mark. It's really one of the privileges of um, there's lots of uh, – privilege as attendant to um, spending this time talking together each week and broadcasting it to everyone. Uh, But one of them is the connection with um, those uh, about to be and relatively new members of our profession and, um, and, you know, contact with those guys keeps a, well, I I don't want to speak for all us old grey fogies, but um, it certainly tends to keep me a little bit fresh and new and invigorated. 
Yes, yes. It's good to see those young whippersnappers <laughs> coming through, Mark, isn't it? They put us now, you have show. a new story. I do. Speaking about whippersnappers. Whippers. And I was going to say whips, whip snakes, but <laughs> um, you want to talk about um, particular aspect with snake venom. I do. I think we've actually had um, one of our uh, news stories has been um, some uh, publication from uh, – Associate Professor Brian Fry from the University of Queensland. They have a toxin evolution lab there, and um, and he's uh, he's quite um, well. I don't think he'd be upset if I called him a bit of a media tart. And um, he does uh, um, get into the news quite a lot. And this is an interesting story in that they've identified a characteristic a. a um, an inherited genetic characteristic that um, snakes that are um, prone to being preyed upon by other snakes have developed a, a degree of, um, of resistance to the neurotoxins um, in the venom of those snakes. And interestingly enough, the effect of the neurotoxins um, is associated with charge, so uh, positively charged um, uh, surfaces in the proteins associated with the nerves guide the neurotoxins into the locking position um, that induces paralysis in the prey. Um, but some of these snakes have evolved to replace critical, positively, uh, critically placed negatively charged amino acids on these neuroset neuroreceptors with positively charged ones um, changing the whole uh, dynamic the the um, position the charge and as a consequence uh, much of the neurotoxin is repelled and doesn't attach to the site where it has its effect um, it's a genetic mutation um, and um, a bit surprisingly, because it would, I would have thought that um, it's probably one of those things that people haven't been looking for because uh, it hasn't been noted before. Um, and um, and uh, Brian's lab has identified this trait evolving at least 10 times in different species of snakes. Um, and so small Burmese pythons, um, uh, relatively slow terrestrial species from Southeast Asia, preyed upon by the, uh, what's the technique, oh, 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 Ophiophagus snakes, snakes that eat, eat other snakes, uh, cobras being the best example. Um, those uh, pythons have this genetic abnormality which um, makes them extremely neurotoxin resistant. And similarly, South African mole snakes are completely unrelated, um, and, but, but another slow-moving snake vulnerable to cobra um, predation um, has the similar sort of um, mutation. But uh, some of the pythons which live in trees, closely related to those Burmese ones, um, not being exposed to the terrestrial cobras don't have the, the, uh, um, the genetic abnormality. So outstanding observation and a classic example of, um, you know, the things... You only find things when you start to look for them. Um, so big shout out to Brian Fry's um, Toxinology Laboratory.
And it's good to see they're getting some funding for some of these types of institutions, Mark. Um, and they mentioned further down, well, $3 million in total, $1 million for a particular grant and $2 million for establishment of the Biomolecular Interaction Facility, ABIF, So, um, which is a bit unusual in these times, isn't it, with um, what's happening with universities and certainly within the faculties and undergraduate world, it's... Um, it's not a happy place in a lot of universities worldwide, isn't it? With with funding cuts and um, um, to 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 teach in staff and um, and yet the numbers of students they want to push more through to help try and fund the deficit that they've had with all the COVID issues, etc. And that's a so, general yeah. thing with universities in general, but it's particularly pertinent to veterinary schools. There, veterinary schools obviously are amongst the most expensive to run, and so they suffer more profoundly you know when when the bean counters look at the the uh, accounts they um they spot the big spending departments and look to um to cut costs and impose restrictions budget restrictions and veterinary schools definitely are the one of the ones who are right in the firing line so we've got to keep them in mind all the time and maintain our support for them brendan yes well with your Mega bucks, you can do a big donation to them uh, once you, once you retire, Mark. So um, I'm, I'm sure the the whichever university or universities you choose to donate to will be um, very very happy to fund the um, Mark Simpson um, Memorial <laughs> Basketball Court. <laughs> Might be just a door to the basketball court. Yes. And well, my story's a quick one, Mark. It's a bit, it's, well, it's one of these bittersweet ones. It's about the Gibbon Rehabilitation Project Sanctuary in Phuket in Thailand, Mark, um, which has seen an influx of Gibbons to be rehabilitated there because of all the um, issues with, with COVID and um, the Gibbons that were used in the tourist industry um, were being handed back to these sorts of rehab centres because um, the people that were using them um, as, 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 Little playthings and to try and try and um, earn a living, I suppose. Um, we're not having that anymore. So, the, yeah, I, I find these ones difficult, Mark, because that you know it's a rehab centre. They try and rescue them and they try and release them back into the wild. Um, although one of the comments and I, I was trying to find it there, saying that um, some of them don't survive very long um, when they're released back into the wild. But um, one of the um, thoughts by one of the people was that um, it's it's better to have a few years in the wild um, rather than you know many more years in captivity, and I sort of um, can see that sort of um, appreciate that sort of um, point there. Um, but they now have thirty five um, gibbons that they've released into the forest mark, including ones born in the wild um, from there. And um, yeah, gibbons are, are one of I think the two um, apes that they have in. Um, in um, Thailand, there, um, including um, you know the ob obvious other one, there's the orangutan, and that's the only two that they have native to the region there, Mark. So, um, yeah, it's it's a bit depressing, isn't it? The <laughs> fact that they get um, that the only way these places get these animals back in um, into these rehab centres to potentially try and um, soft release them back into the wild again is because of a collapse of the tourism industry. But the pleasing thing about this, uh, the events around this, is that while that's been the proximate 
um, trigger. Um, there's also been uh, um, a general increase in complaints about this sort of behaviour um, as people, both the people who live in Thailand and the people who visit there um, are more aware that, um, you know, the tigers and elephants and um, see among the, the um, largest gibbon, all those animals are... When, the, when they're being used for photo ops in bars and on the street side things, they're, they're suffering and, and people are choosing not to. It's sort of sad in a way that um, at a time when there's the least number of tourists going to that part of the world, that um, there's all this, there will be all this extra pressure on the, the rehabilitation centres who already run on, you know, next to no money. So, like you said, and often tourism as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a bit of a twin-edged sword, and and it's good that they're not sitting in bars, entertaining inebriated guests, um, and that um, and that at least they have the yeah, at least they have the uh, chance to um, to return to the wild. Yes, they need to get somebody else on the on the game to name these gibbons too, because um, the the main gibbon they're talking about um, is named Cop, <laughs> named after the police officer who aided in her rescue. I think they need to get a little bit more creative. Uh, although we do a lot of work with a couple of rescue organisations, rabbit and, and guinea pig organisations, and it's amazing with. Um, the number of names that they come up with, I'm, I'm constantly surprised. There's, there's very few that we end up with, you know, Flopsy number three or anything like that. And they've, they've, um, you know, we've got literally hundreds, if not over a thousand um, patients. We'll, we'll uh, have to from this. We'll have to commit a um, one of our uh, podcast names to, to witty yes. names because bloody hell, I am impressed with some of the names that people come up with. Yes. Patient names. Well, we had a, I think it was a bearded dragon in early this week, and its name was Eggnog. You <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> I suppose it looks a bit like a, a, a scrambled egg, the colour of some of these bearded dragons. Yeah. Um, perhaps that's what might be the name in it. Eggnog. Yes. Yes, we will. I'll put it, I'll add it to the list, Mark. Add it, I'll to, add the it to the list. Yes. So let's jump into our main news story, our main topic this week, Mark, um, and we may have a review or two next week of um, some equipment. Well, you will. <laughs> put in your notice here. Geriatric reptile care, um, and we've covered geriatric care in rabbits, I think, before, and we haven't touched on geriatric reptile care at all. So I think it's a good one because it's often something that clients certainly don't think about, that, hey, my, my reptile's getting older, Um do they develop illnesses as they get older and are the things we can do to help them um, make their lives a little bit easier as they're developing those illnesses and what those illnesses are and whether they're the same common sort of illnesses that we see in other species and um, what can we do about them and can we prevent these concerns or illnesses as they get as they get older, Mark? And there we go. We've covered it all. We'll see you all next <laughs> week. So I think the first step we need to chat about is, you know, um, you know, what is a geriatric reptile, Mark? Um, what would you consider an old reptile? And that's a really bit of a thorny one, isn't it? Because we certainly don't know what the average lifespan is for even some of the commonly kept reptiles. And I'm, I'm constantly amazed that, that there's no decent papers out there, for instance, with with the common, the eastern long neck turtle for instance saying that the average lifespan is x number of years and yet 
I've certainly seen Eastern long necks that have been handed down from from grandparents to grandchildren. So, we, and, and they're documented that they have certainly been over fifty or sixty or seventy years of age in captivity. Um, we just don't know, do we, how old these animals get? And, and I know that when they look at um, the studies of, of, of wild reptiles, and the one that I always fascinates me is crocodilians, in that the thought is that some of these crocodiles, species like the saltwater crocodile here in Australia, can potentially live for up to, you know, 200 plus years, um, the thought. So um, it makes it tricky. I mean, I, I, the common ones that probably kept worldwide at, at what bearded dragons is a good one i suppose mark and i generally quote to clients if they say how old or, or how old will my bearded dragon get to or live to I, I typically say 10 to 15 years is sort of the lifespan that we'd hope to get their bearded dragon to live to but um i typically then say you know i'd regard it as geriatric any time from sort of late you know seven or eight years of age onwards as is when we sometimes see these conditions that we might consider um, related to getting old and things wearing out. It's one of the features of domestication, isn't it, that um, that we extend the geriatric stage of life. And so um, it would be a regular thing for us to have, you know, animals um, like bearded dragons that probably in the wild, you know, they're um, uh, sexually mature at their second year they're probably going to live for another four or five years in the wild. I'm guessing, as you say, there's not a large amount of um, ecological evidence in for wild cases um, and, um, and not a lot of uh, captive information. But I would assume that an eight- or nine-year-old bearded dragon is about its term in the wild and some bird of prey is going to take it out about that stage but in captivity it is a pretty standard thing to get them to have quite an extended um uh, uh senior phase to their life and um and of course the, the reason for that is that um we are preventing the predators from taking them out and if we do a good job of managing their health otherwise um and they don't succumb to other uh, metabolic illnesses or infections over the course of their life, they they well run the chance of um, of getting up to that sort of number. Um, and I suspect you're right that there is a great range. That's the difficult thing that, um, you know, our central netted dragons, for example, in the wild, they are 24-month-old things when they pass away. Um, but we regularly see the central netted dragons in captivity get to six or seven. Some of the geckos uh probably only live three or four seasons in the wild but um, we get those to to 10 years or so in captivity so i think we certainly extend their life in captivity but i definitely believe the senior phase of their life is extended and that puts more pressure on us as clinicians to be aware of the comp the things that might complicate their quality of life during that phase of life and i think we and i'm guilty of this we we often forget to talk to the clients about these aspects as um, when, when we're seeing those patients for the first time and the things that we might be able to do um, from day one to help prevent some of these illnesses as they get older um, that we'll talk about shortly as far as sort of preventative health aspects with them um, and there's lots of and, the, and for those people who don't um, treat these animals very often um, reptiles in in their clinics um 
the good news is that um, the common illnesses and conditions that we do see in, in reptiles is, is, is often not dissimilar at all, is it, to, to others, other species. And, and we're talking about the, 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 the obvious ones that we see are things like osteoarthritis, um, renal failure, you know, organ failure and, and, and things wearing out and, 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 and um, 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 becoming, becoming tired, Mark, like we all do <laughs> after a while. Um, so th- things are things are things are um, getting towards the end of their lifespan, and and we're starting to see those co- same common conditions. So I think we need to yeah need to sit back and think. Okay, what sort of things are we going to see in this reptile as it, as, as it gets older? Um, what and the subtleties that where friends, for instance, with osteoarthritis, I'm trying to trying to um, educate the client about what may be the, the signs that we see um, that may indicate that this animal is uncomfortable and it is starting to um, um, have issues with osteoarthritis and it's stiff and sore um, and, and um, trying to get them to, you know, detect at home when that might be an issue. You, um, you know, obviously we can try and do a clinical examination when they come to the clinic, but um, I think it's always good to try and get the clients involved from day one and start thinking about these um, um, things. And, and you know, is is um, Sally the snake um, stiff and sore? Um, and what can we do about helping that animal? So um, are, what are the other sort of common conditions that we see in the mark? So we see, um, I've mentioned renal renal compromise. I've mentioned um, um, osteoarthritis. Um, dental disease is certainly an issue, isn't it, in the lizards, especially things like bearded dragons and um, as they get older. What, any other things that spring to mind? They're probably the main ones that we're looking out for. We definitely see um, an uh and, and I suppose the only other one is a topic that we've touched on um, recently uh, in a roundabout way. The, the, uh, the occurrence of growths tends to um, increase as they get to their senior years. And so uh, those lumps and bumps are much more likely to appear. Um, and obviously the earliest intervention with those is, uh, is a, um, it gives us the best chance of, uh, preventing them from being a, a, a significant effect on their quality of life. So that, you know, you said it before and um, and uh, geriatric care of reptiles is a classic example of, um, of what I think a lot of um, unusual and exotic pet care is that you, we all as veterinarians have lots of knowledge about the things that are likely to happen in animals at a particular stage and we can... Um, extrapolate from what we know to to what's likely and what we don't know, and then we've just got to learn the peculiarities of those species um, that we spend time with. Um, learning that, yes, we do have um, turtles who will develop um, renal disease, and they won't show it till a very late stage because, of course, they're under no hydration stress. Um, they don't. They have a ready supply of. Um, hydration floating around them, so they um they don't show those signs of renal disease until they're they're uh, decompensating and it's a disaster. So being aware of those peculiarities of the species helps us to tailor the the care. The other thing I always like to mention, Brendan, <laughs> cutting you off as you were just preparing to speak, um, is that um the the um it's a it, you you mentioned it before it's a lifelong thing and and some of the uh, geriatric 
care that needs to be applied to these animals is a direct result of factors such as the nutrition of their parents and the incubation of the eggs. Those things can lead to uh, metabolic bone disease problems that then uh, more rapidly than in other individuals will cause uh, potential for osteoarthritis. So, so I think um, it is a case of if you're acquiring um, a young animal, um, talking to the breeder about uh, those circumstances, the nutrition of the parents, the the um, incubation uh, techniques, the experience of the people doing the incubation, that can set a completely different course for their geriatric life. Yep, and that's jumping into the prevention. <laughs> so, but that's good. Um, so... We have this middle age or, or, or slightly elderly reptile come into the clinic, so we're, we're then thinking, okay, ha- how do we pick up on these potential illnesses that they have um, and then what treatment options do we have? And the two things that immediately spring to mind to me as, as far as trying to pick these things up are, are, are one, doing um, starting to think about routine um, diagnostics with them, and that's general blood screens as they get into sort of middle age, um, and and looking at um, um, potentially with some of the animals that we might consider that we're, we're having um, perhaps been prone to things like um, osteoarthritic type conditions or musculoskeletal, even doing survey radiographs, etc., with them. But it's 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 starting to think about doing our diagnostics. But the other big one that I always think about is behaviour mark, and that's where I, I start to talk to the clients fairly early on and say, look, you know what Fido is doing and what's normal for Fido, the, the frog, um, So um, although we're talking about reptiles, um, <laughs> and... and um, and is Fido, the um, fanged um, snake, um, not behaving normally anymore? Is, is, is Fido trying to bite you? And it never was an aggressive snake, and now it is an aggressive snake. And um, so behaviour changes are often an indication of, of potentially discomfort or something not quite right with that animal and not necessarily just brain, brain-based behavioural changes there. And, and it may be the opposite with them and similar that we talk about when we're talking about the, the mammals um, in that it may be a, a reptile that was particularly bold or aggressive previously and now it seems to love to be cuddled and to be sat on the shoulder of the client and they think, gee, he's finally settled down <laughs> after all these years. Um um, and you're gently trying to tell him that, yeah, he's settled down, all right, he's dead. Um, he's sat on his shoulder, but he's actually not breathing anymore. So um, so I think behaviour change is a, a something that I that I like to chat to the client about and, and try and get them to, to re, you know, just get a bit of a feel for is 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 that the, the snake or the lizard or the crocodilian that um, you've had over the last few years, is it? Is it doing the same sort of things it used to do? Um, is it moving around the enclosure normally? Is it just sitting in one corner? And it's they're great, great questions to ask because just like other species, these changes are often insidious. And until you prompt the thought process, um, that gradual change, you know, it's the the animal is very likely to be doing something approximately similar to what it did yesterday, and so that client may not reflect on the fact that in years gone past 
this time of year, we were doing this until you ask them. And so I think that collection of history and really focusing on those changes in behaviour, being aware of the annual cycle for that species, um, getting them to be familiar with it, um, I think they're, they're critical questions for you to ask. And some, some clients are just not interested in that and they won't even weigh, weigh the animal at home, let alone record it. Um, so, but you get some, we get some good clients who are not, you know, record everything down to the, you know, how many grams of feces it passed and yeah. <laughs> what color the urates looked, et cetera. Oh, they're, and they they're have the, all these the, da- database tables and yes, clients when they come in with, you know, the, 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 um, we had, uh, this many, uh, stools and, uh, we shed the skin this many times last year and look, we've, um, we're not doing the same this year. And that leads me into um, the other aspect of behaviour that um, that always is a, an alert for changes in behaviour, and that's altered patterns of thermoregulation. And certainly as animals age and their circulation changes and their level of discomfort changes, um, their patterns of thermoregulation will change. And that's often an excellent question to ask as well. Are they basking in the same spot? Do they seem to be basking for the same amount of time? Are they becoming active after basking for an hour or so? Are they avoiding the hot spot? Um, Sometimes with age, the hypothalamus becomes faulty and they don't have the same thermoregulatory signals. So um, those behaviour questions and garnering an excellent history and soliciting um, the longer-term changes are excellent questions for a clinician to pursue. So we... We won't go into depth in treatment options, I think, because we could be here um, for another hour or so. But there's certainly options there, isn't it, there, Mark? And I think we might cover that elsewhere with um, with a separate podcast with individual conditions, which we already have done for a couple of them. For instance, what sort of options do we have for, for pain relief in reptiles and um, osteoarthritis control, et cetera? But I think um, the, the but, one thing I would... Um, direct because I think it is good that we focus on those uh, medical treatments um, more specifically in another podcast but I think um, even just uh, once you realize your um, bearded dragon is uh, having some trouble with the joints then rearranging the enclosure so that um, they don't have to climb to thermoregulate that they are less likely to fall that those um, adjustments to the enclosure are, are really important things to put in place and so while we as clinicians tend to focus on the analgesia that might be applied or the um, joint fluid modifying agents, I think that just enclosure design can be such a, a boon to these animals if it's applied well. And they're simple and easy and cheap. And it's, you know, we've spoken about it many times before about the rabbits, for instance, and making it, cutting the lip out of the litter tray for them to hop in if they're a bit stiff and sore. And we do the equivalent for the reptiles here. And it's um, it's amazing how simple it is. And it seems to um, have a big impact in helping them um, along their way as they're aging, Mark. Um, what, what is, is there a general thought? This is a, Another note, question without notice, Mark. Um, you mentioned thermoregulation, etc. So, as a general rule, is there one way that you may need to adjust the temperature gradient in the enclosure for reptiles that are that are aging? Do you end up having a 
a an increased hotspot or a, or, or a bigger range of temperatures there, or do you just rearrange things so it, it makes it easier for that animal to potentially get to the um, areas that it, that it wants to get to? Yeah, I tend to I tend to reserve the most dramatic changes to the thermal environment in the enclosure for the animals that are most compromised, um, and so an animal that might be you know, have a, a serious life-threatening um, infection, they're the animals that we're going to go, okay, um, your uh, um, thermoregulatory signals are going to be all out of whack and we're not going to let you um, go and sit in the cold end of the enclosure. We're going to maintain the whole enclosure very close to your POTZ and, um, and try and maintain your metabolism in a zone where you're going to heal up. But for those geriatric animals, the main objective, I think, is to maintain the, the gradient, maybe have a little bit less um, uh, less of the cool end. So it would be very common for us to have a bearded dragon enclosure, for example, that has a hot spot above 35 degrees, just a little bit above 35 degrees. And at times that enclosure is going to, in the cool end, drop down to you know, maybe in the mid-teens. Um, and that gradient is going to provide that lizard with an opportunity to experience a range of, um, of temperatures and that temp the, the particularly the cool spot will change throughout the year. But when they're older, we tend to raise that cool end and maintain it closer to the, um, you know, the... the uh, uh, mid twenties or high twenties, so that um, so that they're not their bones are not sore, their joint fluid isn't uh, getting really cold. That they might metabolically be able to cope with those temperatures in the wild for a short period of time, but there's no need for them to do that when they're old. So, probably lifting the tail end those lower temperatures is. Uh, but maintaining a gradient across the enclosure, making sure that the hot spots are not difficult to get to. That's the other thing with arthritic reptiles, that um, they will, you know, more less frequently climb across things and they'll tend to stay in one part if there's um, all the uh, the environmental enrichment and uh, um, exercise-inducing activities uh, structures that are in their enclosure when they're young, um, they might effectively act as a cage to prevent them from thermoregulating as well as they might. So it comes back to um, observing them, um, knowing what they would do routinely and making it as easy as possible for them to do it. Great answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's and just remembering that you know they're not going to metabolize any medications where we're giving to them unless they're at, the, at or near that preferred body temperature. So that's the other aspect of that that we always need to remember um, for the reptiles. So what about prevention, Mark? So how can we prevent these geriatric conditions in reptiles? Can we do that? Oh. What, what, what sort of things do we talk about to the client um, during that first visit with that young bearded dragon or that young snake or that young crocodilian species? Well, it does depend a little bit. You know, the the specific advice is species-specific, um, that, that we might say something different to um, – so – I'm happy to give you a couple of examples, Brendan. Um, so for uh, freshwater turtles, for example, um, we know that um, that those animals 
if they are fed an abundant a diet that's abundantly rich in protein, they're highly likely to develop um, uh, rapid growth and and renal disease at a relatively early age. So managing their diet so that um, it's not that you know they're not overfed it and. Turtles, as we all know, are, it's just so much fun to watch them eat and they start to learn that each time you walk into the room you might plonk a bit of turtle food into their aquarium. or And so it becomes this positive feedback loop and so um, managing the nutrition so that uh, the worst aspects of it, whether it affects their kidney or liver, um, whether it puts weight on and puts pressure on their joints, that's probably the first thing that we're talking about with preventative care. Are you with me, Brendan? And I think it's, a, yes, I'm with you. I'm always with you. Um, and it's a really important bit about that, and we harp on about it all the time, that um, a lot of, of reptiles are overfed oh. in captivity, you know, um, because they're, they're big fat slugs, as I say to the clients. Well, not to the clients, but <laughs> about their pets. <laughs> Sometimes I get a slap across the face when I say that. But, um, yes, so um, we need to be wary of that, um, that, these are animals that in the wild they may be struggling to to find a feed and they're they're very efficient at when they do come across a, a food item or feed items um, that they um, they manage to store up as much as they can um, and um, we need to be really ke- keep them lean and keep them keen mark is what we need to do i told you the black-headed um, python story haven't i we um we had uh, my only um sole uh scientific publication was a, a, a case study of um, hepatic lipidosis in black-headed pythons and um, and we see this pretty commonly in this species and the snake that uh, was the the um, subject of the case study weighed 8.6 kilos and I talked to some friends who were uh, ecologists in Western Australia and they had um, a significant uh, database of wild um, of the morphometrics of wild black-headed pythons yes. and the heaviest the heaviest female nearly nine feet long that they had was yeah 2.7 kilos yeah. Um, that yeah. in the wild they don't get above three kilos and yet this snake was um, uh, um, you know three times more than three times that weight um, and, um, and it's a big snake they, they, there is going to be metabolic problems and uh, bony problems there and they're not going to live there the the potential full term of their life and it's hard isn't it when you have that client and you're struggling to get them to say look don't feed every week how about feeding every 10 days for a bit and then we'll drop it back to every two weeks and that and they they panic um so that, so they feed them every 10 days and they double the amount of feed <laughs> that they offer to the snake yes so yeah c- control prevention it, it, it's certainly diet it, it's thinking about um environmental enrichment and getting that animal to exercise from day one um with them it's regular regular health checks with the vet and, and it's starting to think about those preventative sort of um, um, diagnostics like blood screens etc um, as they're as they as they're aging or getting towards that that middle age whatever that may be um, so it's it's just been aware of the fact that as you mentioned at the start that we have animals that were there outliving their normal lifespan if they were wild animals and and we're we're having um, Having these animals that are um, that we're sort of nursing along, aren't we? Um, as as they're getting into that that 
old age and we're trying to make things as comfortable as they can and we we um and then making them as comfortable as they can when we provide that gentle euthanasia at the end as well um looks like it sounds like i'm wrapping up it does, it does. It? <laughs> but i think you have a couple of things you wanted to say i was, only gonna, I was go just going to say yeah. one um uh final point that i think um uh the the uh preparation for uh, the care of geriatric reptiles is one of those circumstances where um where those annual examinations or even um, biannual examinations are, are fully justified. And because we were talking about uh, reminding people of those changes in behaviour which are more long-term, um, if you are regularly seeing them, you know, once every six or 12 months, you're in an ideal position to say to the client, whoa, um, Slytherin looks just uh, an, an awful lot stiffer than the last time we saw. And, and that's... Uh, something that may not be apparent to the person that's with them every day. So I really think um, uh, there's a good – many people resist the regular examinations of reptiles, uh, but I find that they provide a, an immense opportunity to improve the level of care that's provided to them, and particularly as they age. And it's that independent – sort of opinion too and you're only seeing the animal once every six months or so and they're seeing it every day or every week when they're feeding it and when they're cleaning the enclosure and they don't notice those those changes that may be subtle but they're pretty obvious to us because we've only seen it you know six months ago was the last time we saw the animal yes well i think oh mr outro man's kicked in already mark so with that we'll say hooroo from the gurus and we'll talk to you all next week Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.